So I just got back from my honeymoon in Amsterdam the other day. And on our very last day in the city, I went to go check out a local running group and I ran into the marine biologist who studies deep sea sponges. And you know what she told me? The active ingredient in remdesivir, a crucial COVID antiviral, comes from sponges. Who knew? This is Pulse Check. I'm Catherine Ellen Foley. I'm one of your trusty FDA reporters with a special focus on tobacco. Here are a couple of things that I'm watching in my reporting world. Last week, these two big tobacco companies, Philip Morris International and Altria, decided they were going to part ways over a single product called ICOS, which is this heated tobacco device that kind of looks like a cigarette. And what had happened is the companies agreed that Philip Morris, even though it made ICOS, would give Altria exclusive rights to sell the product in the U.S. ICOS is really tricky. If you haven't heard of it in the U.S., you're not alone. And that's because it's been off store shelves for the past year or so. Uh, There was a big patent dispute between Philip Morris International and R.J. Reynolds, another large tobacco company, that resulted in the International Trade Commission banning the importation of ICOS to the U.S. So at the moment, it's not available, but Philip Morris is also rushing to produce the product in the U.S. as a way to get around it. Also in tobacco world, the Reagan Udall Foundation, which is this group that has been charged with reviewing FDA's tobacco regulatory program, has been taking listening sessions since Friday. They'll go through today and Tuesday to learn more about how FDA regulates tobacco. On the panel of experts, we'll hear from industry and public health experts about the process of applying to market new products, as well as how FDA regulates and enforces those regulations on tobacco products. It's all juicy stuff for you tobacco regulatory nerds out there. Outside of tobacco news, the health tech industry is changing the way it's caring for chronic disease. My colleague Ruth Reeder is here with us to talk about what some of these changes are and how they're going to impact Medicare and Medicaid systems. The diseases we're talking about today are hypertension and diabetes. What is changing is there is now technology, and there's been this technology for a little bit, but essentially remote blood pressure cuffs so you can check your blood pressure at home and then also glucometers so that you can check your blood sugar levels if you have diabetes. So these things have been around for a while, but doctors have started to figure out how to use them in really effective ways to help patients cut down on their disease and put it into a controlled place. And then the other thing that's happened that sort of accelerated this movement is that we had the pandemic. And so a lot of doctors were forced to treat patients remotely. And that sort of gave them some practice with how to use these technologies. So now that they've had that practice and now that they're sort of starting to figure out the best ways to use these technologies, we're starting to see doctors use them to basically like continue care outside of the doctor's office. So rather than see your doctor, you know, once a year, you can now sort of keep the conversation going. You know, your doctor can see your blood pressure like three times a week, let's say five times a week, depending on how often, you know, depending on how severe your disease is, will probably depend on how frequently they they want you to send in new data. But like that allows them to sort of change medications in real time and just have a better sort of be more dialed into the patient's healthcare and help them make changes to their diet, to whatever else, just much more quickly. 
And, you know, as with any kind of new treatment or procedure in medicine, we need data that actually works, right? So I know that Oshner Health, a hospital system in Louisiana, recently did some experiments using this technology around diabetes care. Can you walk me through what happened with that? What they did at the beginning of 2021 was they started giving their Medicaid patients access to the two devices that we talked about in the beginning, a blood pressure cuff and a glucometer. These were specifically for patients with hypertension or diabetes. And within 90 days, nearly half of the hypertension patients were able to bring their disease under control, which is 23% better than typical care. And then on the other side, on the diabetes side, it was about 60% of the diabetes patients who were able to stabilize their condition within the same time frame. So these were like really good numbers. And we can argue this is a pilot and, you know, this is not a double-blind study. I'm sure there's like some wiggle room in terms of how effective or whatever. But I think that the baseline is that these these are good numbers, right? And they were also able to really reduce emergency room visits, which again is really important to Medicaid insurers, right? They don't want to have to reimburse for that. And so that's one instance. But I, I also want to touch on a couple of other instances. Another thing that we've been seeing, or I guess these are sort of like other proof points, which is that the VA has been working on remote monitoring and incorporating remote monitoring into its practice, I think since like 2003. I mean, they've been doing it for a really long time. And recently they decided to open up, they're basically willing to invest another billion dollars in remote patient monitoring. So, you know, the VA is one of those systems that really needs to be able to prove that it, that this care is cost effective. And the same thing is true of Kaiser Permanente, which is another health system, private obviously, but because they are both the insurer and provide care to patients, also have to similarly make the money work. And they've also been investing in remote patient monitoring. On the flip side of this, from an academic perspective, when you look at the studies, the data is a bit mixed. So it's not totally clear that remote patient monitoring, giving patients these devices at home, will necessarily lead to improved health outcomes. But that is also partially because it really depends on how you implement it. And none of these studies and none of these programs have a consistent way of doing that. There's no set standard for how this should be done. What happens if it seems like these programs aren't working? Like, what is the real risk here? It seems to me like there's probably like patient health risks, but then also uh, cost risk for these systems that are trying to save costs in the long run by investing a little bit more in this new technology, right? Is that sort of what we're, we're looking at? It's twofold, right? One is that of course they want their patients to be healthier, but part of the reason they want their patients to be healthier is because it's less expensive for them, right? Now that said, you know, there are some risks. Some doctors I've spoken to are a little hesitant about the technology because they worry that it puts an over-reliance on telehealth. And then, you know, that means that they might miss something important, like in the case of diabetes, like maybe they miss the signs of a diabetic foot ulcer because they've been only paying attention to blood glucose, right? There's another complaint, which is sort of funny, which is that the other sort of risk or concern that pe- that doctors specific, or I shouldn't say doctors, but more insurers are really worried about, and this is the case for Medicaid as well, is just that 
it is just going to be extra cost, right? Because sadly, even though technology can really help improve health outcomes, it is not necessarily always going to drive down cost. So there are a number of little barriers here. Why isn't something like Medicaid doing this for all of the patients that use that as their primary health insurance? Medicaid, it's interesting. CMS has, at the federal level, created some codes, some reimbursement codes for remote monitoring, so theoretically ushering in reimbursement. However, states get to pick and choose what they reimburse for, how they reimburse for it. There's a lot of flexibility in how they do this stuff. And not all states have decided to reimburse for remote monitoring. So that's one piece of it. And even states that do reimburse for it, they have a lot of restrictions. And once a state says, okay, we're going to reimburse for it, then basically it has to offer it to everybody who receives Medicaid. It can't limit it, really. I mean, it can in some ways, as some states have done, right? For certain conditions, you have to meet certain criteria. So, you know, there are some, there's some rules there. But I think even within that, not all states want to necessarily roll it out to everyone who has that condition, because again, it may only be useful for a subset of those patients. And balancing that cost, because Medicaid, you know, state Medicaid offices have to balance the budget, right? They have a finite amount of money, and they have to make sure that they spend it wisely, and they have to make real choices about what they're spending their money on. So I think that's one of the big barriers. I think, you know, this, the lack of data that we talked about earlier, because there isn't quite that consensus yet, state offices are trying to figure out how they can best incorporate it, but it's not quite clear. Once again, the American healthcare system is incredibly nuanced, and I am glad we have you here to explain it for us. Thanks so much, Ruth. Thank you. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese is our producer. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ahmet is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Catherine Ellen Foley. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. Thanks for listening.